This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Fabidi Anjabuila. And I'm Ben Brophy. All right, so today we are going to talk about voting rights and their history in America. Um, this is actually a subject that I think if you had asked me like 10 years ago, it actually wouldn't have been a big thing in the current national debate, but it clearly um, is making a resurgence now for reasons that we'll get into. Um, but to understand those contemporary debates, um, we have to go into the history a little bit. So Nick, walk us through the history, bring us up to speed. All right, so a brief history of voting rights uh, in America. Um, so the thing to start with is obviously that famously voting rights were a relatively new thing when America was founded. Um, you know, the original constitution says nothing actually about who gets to vote. It leaves it up to the states. Um, States at the beginning, as most of us know this history, mostly limit the franchise to white men who own property. Um, so that's, you know, late 18th century. This continues for nearly 100 years uh, into the time of the Civil War in the late, the late 19th century. After the Civil War, you have three amendments to the Constitution that are sort of critical for us to understand um, the way we think about voting rights today. So those are the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. The 14th Amendment makes all former slaves citizens. It actually goes farther than that. It, go, it, it, it sort of affirms that anyone born on U.S. soil is a citizen. Um, and the 15th Amendment, I'm just going to read this one because it, it's the one about voting. It says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So you can see there a kind of clear aim at we're not allowing you to disenfranchise former slaves um, or anybody really on account of any of these uh, things. Um, so really, really clear statement made enshrined in our constitution. So that's kind of, that was supposed to say, all right, everyone has, uh, everyone has the uh, right to vote and uh, it shall not be abridged or denied by the US or any state. Um, at first, this works well and uh, I was just telling uh, uh, the two of you that we need to do a separate um, episode about the Civil War and Reconstruction, but the Reconstruction era immediately after the Civil War, these rights are essentially enforced in the South and in other states, well, in the South in particular, under military occupation. Um, uh, but shortly after federal troops are withdrawn from the South, um, Southern states, cities, and other jurisdictions, not just in the South, but around the country, begin to limit voting rights by other means. Um, these are what are called uh, Jim Crow laws. Um, and so these things did many different things. Um, there are lots of things, segregation, other things we can talk about, but the ones related to voting were things like um, poll taxes to vote, right? So you'd have to pay a tax. And if you didn't pay the tax, um, then you wouldn't be allowed to vote. And many, you know, black people or just other people who didn't have the money would be disenfranchised. Um, literacy tests or other tests uh, to vote. Um, maybe more importantly than this, like everything is about how a law is implemented, right? So it, the way these tests were administered mattered too. So I can give you an easy literacy test, I can give you an easy sort of qualification test, or I can do something like, tell me how many bubbles there are on that soap bar, which is the mm -hmm. kind of one of the famous ones, mm -hmm. right? And so local officials, white local officials interested in preserving the franchise only for white people would do things like this. One other interesting historical note, if you've ever heard of the idea of a grandfather clause or being grandfathered into something, we use that all the time now, but it actually has a pretty ugly origin uh, in this era of our history because basically they could say, well, a lot of these laws had what were called grandfather clauses, which said that if your grandfather was allowed to vote, you're allowed to vote and are exempted from these requirements. Well, if it's late 19th century you know, North Carolina, then that means only white people are grandfathered in and all the black people are subject to these different tests which are basically designed to keep them off the voting rolls. So all of this is happening despite the fact that there is a clear constitutional amendment, the 15th Amendment that says, you're not allowed to do this. It was essentially nullification by another means, right? It was states and jurisdictions saying, we're just gonna ignore what the federal constitution says. Now, the feds tried to do something about this. There are, you can document multiple what are called civil rights acts between the late 19th century and the kind of mid 60s in the 20th century that are called civil rights acts that are meant to end this practice, but none of them have sufficient teeth. 
um, none of them sort of have sufficient provisions to enforce. It's kind of like, I've written a law, but if everyone in this region is committed to not enforcing it um, and, and, and committed to undermining it, there's really not much I can do short of something really drastic. So the something drastic that was necessary was, that brings us to sort of current voting rights laws, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a hard-won piece of legislation um, that is sort of a direct result of the civil rights movement. Um, so there are general provisions. It, it outlaws, obviously, most of these practices. It establishes the right to vote um, in statute as well as in the constitutional amendment, uh, the 15th Amendment. Um, there are two sections worth thinking about of this act. Section 2 basically says, I can bring a lawsuit against any county, any jurisdiction, uh, to saying that practice is discriminatory, please invalidate it, and a court can grant you relief. But the most important provision of the Voting Rights Act, more likely than not, was something called Section 5. And it was a unique provision. I'm sorry, I should say it is a unique provision. I say was, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but Section 5 essentially said, if for those jurisdictions that have a history of discrimination, they don't just get to pass new laws that implicate who gets to vote. Any law that they want to pass has to be cleared by the Justice Department at the federal level or by a panel of judges. So the onus was on the jurisdiction to prove that the new law they were trying to pass wasn't discriminatory. Um, and what that meant was that the federal Justice Department could strike down those laws preemptively. Um, that's actually a pretty unusual mechanism if you think about it, but that was what they thought was necessary, and it turned out to be what was necessary. It's really only after 1965 that you start to see um, sort of enfranchisement be equal. You could argue we were not a full democracy until the 70s and 80s, around the time I was born, <laughs> um, on that basis, because up until that point, you can't see a consistent record of universal suffrage um, uh, and universal granting of the vote. Well, I, I think you have to argue that, e even by the the constitutions and the statutes you've just cited. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's the 15th Amendment, for example, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, that abolish slavery, grant citizenship, grant the right to vote, the right to vote, um, that that's that's following the Civil War. Um, that's that's a right. hundred years of, of U.S. history mm -hmm. um, prior to allowing that. Then, if we're talking another hundred years before those provisions are actually actualized uh, in the lives of the people that it's meant to protect, um, there's no way to talk about this being a democracy with any integrity uh, mm -hmm. without understanding that, in fact, we we weren't a full-fledged democracy until the late 1900s or yeah, late 20th century. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about this, Nick, is um, th there's no way to read this development of law, this, this history you've just reviewed, uh, without understanding its, its racialized context, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and without understanding um, something of the way depravity manifested itself in, in culture and laws, uh, and so on. So when you think about the, the Voting Rights Act of, of 1965 and what it's pushing against, um, it's, it's pushing against a, a widespread cultural and legal practice of, of disenfranchising uh, particular groups. That was not being curbed as long as it was being left up to states. Mm -hmm. so, so states' rights wasn't getting it, right? Yeah. Um, and so you're using here uh, the mechanism of law, really, uh, from a theological perspective, to restrain evil, to restrain uh, sin, um, that was expressing itself in in really racialized terms, and and that had been the that's really the story of the country in that way. Yeah, definitely. Ben, anything you want to add on that? So I want to highlight one other sort of issue that is adjacent to the right to vote, but also matters, um, and this is something around how congressional districts are drawn. Uh, there are 435 congressional districts, each represented by one member of Congress. Um, the Constitution says that states shall choose how to draw the boundaries of their districts, and that districts have to be equal in population. So the key question this raises is, how do you count population? So if you, if you remember, the fam famously, the Three-Fifths Compromise uh, counted um, enslaved Africans as three-fifths of people for the purposes of population count, but mm -hmm. without giving them the right to vote. Um, that was considered a compromise because it gave the South more seats in Congress without having them have to give these folks the right to vote. Um, 
And so that's kind of one thing. How do you count population? There's only a, there's a more recent standard set by the Supreme Court of one person, one vote, um, which is an important sort of uh, kind of underpinning for how we think about drawing congressional districts today. Um, but there's another um, issue here, which is something called gerrymandering. Um, the idea being that you can draw districts in such a way that um, the patterns of voters in those districts um, can favor one party or the other, or can favor one race or another. Um, the original gerrymander um, was way, way, way back in the 19, early 19th century. Um, Elbridge Gerry, um, a governor of Massachusetts in 1812, signed a bill creating a very weird shaped district that was shaped like a salamander. That's what they said. So they called it a gerrymandered district. Um, and um, ever since then, the idea of state legislatures drawing districts in a way to privilege their own interests rather than others um, has been a thing that you could do under our current system. Um, it's interesting, too, because um, there's a lot about the way we draw districts that isn't set in the Constitution. The very idea that our districts are single member has only been set in law since 1965. Before that, there were states that had multi-member districts, which actually is a great is a great remedy for gerrymandering. Um, if you just sort of have everyone elected at large from a larger district, um, you're not going to get that as much. Anyway, how one draws a district matters a great deal in terms of how power is apportioned. And so it, it matters so much that the Voting Rights Act also contains a provision that prohibits the drawing of districts in a way that will dilute the power of minority voters. So if minority voters are 10% of your population and you have 10 districts, you could draw 10 districts each with just 10% of voters in those districts and they don't have a lot of power. You could draw one district in which they are the majority and you're gonna end up with them having more concentrated power. And so that's the question that's at play. You can always play around with those numbers in order to change the outcome of elections and that's another sort of contested space. So what does that mean for the kind of issues at play today? Well, um, a couple things. On the idea of voting rights, um, there's a recent Supreme Court case called Shelby County v. Holder. Shelby County being, oh gosh, where is this county? Is it in Alabama? Um, hang on. <laughs> I need to check. Um, never mind. You know, it's not important. <laughs> I, just, I just won't say it. Um, there's a recent case uh, called Shelby County v. Holder in which a um, one of these jurisdictions sued and said, we want to kind of throw out not Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, but the map that says that we as a jurisdiction have a history of discrimination. They'd say, well, it's 2012 at this point. Surely we have overcome our past history of discrimination. You shouldn't draw maps like these anymore, right? Um, and so um, basically what they argued was, um, Section 5 shouldn't apply to us, and it actually it shouldn't apply to anyone. And what the Supreme Court did was they struck down the map that Congress had approved only a few years prior on a bipartisan basis and said, Section 5 still exists, but until Congress draws a new set of maps um, that sort of says, uses a different formula for who used to discriminate, then Section 5 just is inoperative. So effectively, and, and it's interesting, right after that decision, dozens of counties and states in dozens. these regions rushed dozens. to create new laws yep. that were eerily like the laws of old. Yep. So there are voter ID laws, for example, laws that say in order to vote, um, there are certain forms of ID that you have to have. Um, forms of ID that you may be less likely to have if you're poor, if you're marginalized, hence if you're a person of color. I mean, you can literally cite a case in a state like Texas, which used to be covered by the formula, where they'd say, a gun permit is a an acceptable form of ID, but a student ID is not, right? Mm -hmm. And forget race for a second. This literally just has to do with I think I know who Democrats vote for. I think I I think I know who votes for Democrats. I think I know who votes for Republicans, and therefore I will allow the types of IDs for my voters and not allow the types of IDs for their voters. Um, there were also um, a number of things. There's another sort of stream of this around what's called felon disenfranchisement which is to say when you commit a felony, you lose the right to vote in some states, and in some states you lose it forever, right? And so um, what does that mean? Even after you've kind of paid your debt to society and you sort of come back into society, but you, you can't ever vote again. Um, and um, the other thing that these states started to do was they started to get even more aggressive about drawing these sorts of maps um, that were going to sort of favor their party, their interests over the interests of others. It's funny. The issue with gerrymandering these days 
is less explicitly about race. That's actually still prohibited. But it is more about sort of allowing one party to kind of draw seats to favor its people. And both parties do it, actually. Which mm. is about race. Yeah, ultimately it has a <laughs> racial impact. That's yeah, right. Just mm-hmm. given the way people vote, yep. it was just yeah, patterns. Yeah. It's, it's about race. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So those are some of the fault lines. Um, you, you can tell from the way Thabiti and I are already talking that we are skeptical of some of these laws, many, most or all of these laws that are being passed. Let me kind of... By which you mean recent laws, recent like laws. the weakening of Section 5. And the weakening of that, Section 5, right. the kind of passage of new voter ID laws, right. the passage of laws that um, sort of create any sort of restrictions on voters. And, I mean, there's other things. There's administrative action. There's purging people from the voter rolls, for yeah. example, um, making it harder to register to vote, mm-hmm. right? So there are states that allow you to do same-day voter registration, and in many of the states, those state, in many states that are controlled by usually Republicans, those laws are being kind of clawed back. So you can't do early voting, you can't do same-day voter registration. The idea being, we'd rather make it a little harder in general to vote. And there's another, there's another aspect there, which is to say, if you're a Republican, your voters are more reliable voters. They tend to be willing to jump through more hoops in order to vote. If you're a Democrat, your voters um, may be less inclined or, frankly, have less time, right? Like, So if you're working class, I mean, just another simple issue, right, is election, election day falls on a Tuesday, right? There are people who talk about should election day be a federal holiday so that more people can vote, right? But Republicans oppose that because they, again, they calculate at least, I think, um, that um, doing that will mean more Democrats vote relative to Republicans, right? So there's all kinds of questions about who gets to vote, how easy or difficult should it be to vote that these laws touch on. And I was just saying, Thabiti and I are fairly, I think all three of us are fairly skeptical of these laws, but I will actually turn to you, Ben, and just say, let's think about like, what's the good faith argument for some of these laws um, that's being made? I know a few of them, we can kind of get into that a little bit as well. Sure, Uh, I'll do do my best. I will fully admit this is not an area of expertise at all for me I've, I've not studied it um, so there's my there's my disclosure um, so I'll start with gerrymandered districts I think I think you could make an argument for why gerrymandering the mechanism is okay uh, whereas perhaps the application recently in, in general has been abused or misused. So, if I'm remembering my poli sci days correctly, there was a time um, in the 80s and 90s in particular where uh, the two sides would come together and say, hey, you know, we both have contested districts. Let's, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat. Let's gerrymander. You get all my Dems, I'll take all your Republicans, and then we both get a little safer or whatever. Yeah. Maybe I'd my home state of California did that several cycles in a row. Right. And so it used to be quid pro quo. And, and so I'm inclined to think, in general, gerrymandering is often a tool used to Im- keep the empowered in power, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes on a bipartisan basis. Sometimes on a bipartisan basis. Yeah. I think recently, you, you could. It, it seems to me, the Republicans are acting in bad faith for the sake of their own interests. I'm inclined to think that if the roles were reversed, you know, the Democrats would would operate in the in the same way. Um, that being, go ahead. And they did. Yeah. Right. For many uh, sort of decades, particularly in southern states, as sort of like you could argue that the switch of state legislatures from Democrat to Republican was delayed, right. um, given the tilt of those states by yeah. gerrymandering by those yeah. legislatures in the sort of 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Yeah. So I think I can make a state's rights argument for gerrymandering um, in the sense which the Constitution has delegated this to the states. Uh, States should be able to organize their districts as they see fit so long as they don't violate federally passed amendments like the 15th. Um, And so if they apply that for kind of a quid pro quo, uh, you know, you get a safer district, I get a safer district. I don't necessarily have a problem with that uh, or, or rather as a citizen I can see how that fits within the rights reserved to the states um, so I think I can make an argument that way that the, the mechanism of gerrymandering could be okay 
does seem to me that the current application is aimed not just at this, hey, quid pro quo, but rather the disenfranchisement of, of several groups of people. And so that becomes problematic from a citizen perspective, given the 15th Amendment. Um, and I think also biblically, but I'll let Pastor T handle that. Yeah, one. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be my argument for gerrymandering, is I think the mechanism could be, as many things are used as a, a tool to keep the power in power, or to make deals, or for the states to kind of try and balance against a over-aggressive majority at the federal level, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for voter ID laws, um, they sound so innocuous. It sounds like, oh, you should you should have ID to vote. That, that sounds safe. Um, and I guess the argument I could see being made is given foreign interference in the 2016 election um, and the fact that people on the left and the right are already making noises about the 2020 election and saying, are we going to respect the results? Are these, re- are these results legitimate? Um, I think we have a fairly robust election system. There is a certain number, number of miscast boat, votes every, every cycle. Um, so I guess the argument would be, you know, for us to have confidence in our electoral system, we need to know that the people who are voting are actually the people who are supposed to be voting. So I, that's my guess at what the thinking is or the justification is for voter ID laws. However, when the requirements for those IDs target certain populations, again, it's, it's where you take something innocuous, something that could be fine, and then target specific populations that I think you get into trouble. But if I'm making an argument for voter ID laws, my sense is the argument would be citizens should vote. And if you're not a citizen or if you've lost that vote for some reason, we should be sure that the right people are voting and eliminate fraud. That's my best guess. Mm-hmm. And that that is one of the arguments that gets made, right, about voter fraud. And I think one of the contested questions is how big a problem is it, right? And um, it does not appear to be very large, right? But partly because it's really hard to organize large scale voter fraud. It's hard to make it worth your while actually to do it, uh, to have a bunch of people show up and pretend to be someone else or to try to vote twice or any number of things like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's yeah. I will say, if you're a foreign power, Russia, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can throw a couple million bucks at some online advertising and get this much media coverage that then starts to cast, you know, questions about sure. the electoral process. That seems like a good buy. So there's, in the sense, you're right, voter fraud is hard to pull off, but casting aspersions on our electoral process is actually quite a bit cheaper. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I'd say, too, there's an interesting point here ben which is to say the the issue actually gets at something that will be i think near and dear to your libertarian heart which is there's no such thing as like a national id card or even a state id card that everyone is required to have right if there were and if everyone just as a matter of existing sort of had one we would perhaps not run into this problem as much right Right. but that requires making trade-offs that some of us aren't willing to make maybe all of us aren't willing to make like you could say for like, there are states actually that are saying we're going to pass a voter ID law and we're going to make it have a provision to make it easy for everyone to get a free ID, right? Like there are states that do that, yeah. um, but even then the question becomes it's an additional step you have to take in order to be able to vote, and is that okay? Is that ever well not is that ever a good idea? But how do we think about whether that's a good idea? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing I'll, the other argument I'll make and some I think conservatives will make this is to say. You know, voting ain't beanbag, is what they would say, right? Voting is a kind of one of the most important political acts we undertake. It should not be done so casually or lightly. And so if there's a step or two you got to go through in order to do it, well, then so be it, <laughs> right? That that's I mean, that is like, it should require, like it's a kind of, it shouldn't be just something where, I mean, I think the greatest fear of that person speaking is the is the sort of old school machine politician who like, drives around on election day, picks up people, promises each of them like, you know, a bottle of Coke um, and says, just come on down to the polling place and vote for me in parentheses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, that's just mindless voting. Voting should be an act of consideration. And so, of course, it's not too much to ask these folks to do these things. That would be the other sort of argument I hear made. That strikes me as um, privileged. Perhaps. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think some people, if you're working a full-time job, 
you vote when you can. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, you there's also, again, we're inside the Beltway. Sure. We think about these things a lot, perhaps too much. Uh, we have this podcast. Um, this is <laughs> this is kind of the exhibit A. Yeah, this is the air we breathe. But I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's you know living in Iowa and working in the cornfields, you know, and they're working eight to ten hours a day. They're getting home. They're not. They might not be able to put the quote unquote you know hard thought into who they're voting for, but that doesn't rob them of their right as a citizen mm. to vote. Um, so clearly, I'm not not doing a good job making an argument for these laws. Um, yeah, leave it at that. Yeah, no, but I think you, you you put your finger on something important, Ben, which is that it's it's I, I actually would not go so far as to say categorically a law that requires an ID to vote is a bad thing. Right. I think that the current generation of them, as passed, as applied, and the intent behind them, clearly seems to be a bad thing in most cases. Well, what's so discouraging to me as a, a conservative, um, and I'll, I'll adopt that label, I guess, um, is instead of trying to win the battle of ideas, it seems that we're much more interested in rigging the rules of the game. Yeah. Like, so, if we have better ideas, let's make the case. Yeah. This is the thing, actually, the aspect of this that keeps me up at night the most, right? So if I think about recent elections there was perhaps a little bit too much triumphalism from the obama folks after 2012 <laughs> perhaps until a little bit but the narrative that came out of that election was changing demographics mean the dems are favored essentially even the sort of republican party's autopsy that report that it wrote after that election kind of said we got to do a better job reaching out to different kinds of kinds of voters and sort of the trump campaign was almost an experiment in how much more can I squeeze out of this coalition that is much, much, much more white, usually skews older, right? Skews kind of lower education levels, but that's less relevant, right? And um, how much can I squeeze out of it in order to win, right? And it turns out that when Hillary Clinton's the other candidate um, and when there's a whole range of other factors involved, it's just enough. Right, and that's what happened in 2016. Um, and the lesson that's drawn from that, I think, might be: we can just hang on if we tilt the rules in our favor. We can hang on with the same coalition, even though the demographics are sort of slowly moving against us. And what that forces us into is to dig ourselves into this hole of defending these sorts of positions on voting that essentially make us anti-democratic over time, right? And we become un- unmoored from the idea that the United States should be a full democracy. And we, be- we become invested in these arguments that we've just made, mm-hmm. right, around, oh, it requires character and you shouldn't be lazy as a voter. And, oh, by the way, it's, you know, we, you know, we got to prevent voter fraud, even though there's not a lot of voter fraud. Like, you become invested in these arguments because those arguments are intertwined with how you maintain your power, um, without having to change your issues or your opinions or the things, the arguments that you make, as you say, Ben. Mm. Yeah, and I guess the one thing that strikes me about the fear you just outlined and kind of the the postmortem of the 2012 election is it really does accept, and, and this, I believe I hear this line parroted on, on the alt-right um, world, is that it, it kind of accepts demographics as destiny, mm-hmm. which I reject Right. I don't think that's true, uh, and I think if you you play into that fear, um, a you're you're fearing your fellow American who happens to be a Democrat, which there are worse there are worse people out there. Uh, <laughs> one and then two, I, I think it really does marginalize yourself as like oh well only we're only going to be able to get these groups and it's it writes off whole sections of the country and assume mm. basically. There was I was once at a dinner where Senator Tim Scott was at. Um, he's an African American Republican senator from South Carolina. The one the one American <laughs> Republican senator. And he was like, "You got to show up. You know, you've got to mm-hmm. go to these. If you if you just write off African American neighborhoods and you never go there, you never show up. Mm. You have no chance. And of course you don't. And and that always just struck me as true. And I I do think conservatives have to think about how are we going to engage people who 
don't look like us. It's 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 that simple. Um, so if we spent the time and effort that we do on trying to rig the rules of the game on perhaps siphoning off, I don't know, 15 to 25% of the minority vote, it changes the whole thing. I mean, that's how George W. Bush won. Yes. No doubt, yeah. right? Like, Well, and, yeah. and Trump got 12% of the African-American vote when Romney got less than one. Was it that big a shift? I'm not sure. I don't think it was 12%. I th- well... I'm not sure it was that different from Romney is I think what I would say yeah. it, it might have been that there's a yeah but we should we should look that up all right well so that was I think I hope help a helpful way to kind of set the table in thinking about these issues um, and to think about sort of some of the sort of the issues at stake um, the BD let's well, uh, yeah I would love to hear your kind of reaction to no, that I'm just then, yeah. I was listening is uh, wonderful wonderful conversation I, I think in summary um, what I would say is what we're talking about uh, may be one of the largest threats to American-style democracy um, mm-hmm. afoot. If you, if you take out foreign interference, um, yeah. take out sort of enemies foreign, and think about what is the enemy domestically in terms of voting rights, yeah. I think it's this set of issues that we're talking about here. Um, and it's, it's, it's dangerous in precisely the way you guys are describing um, when you ask yourself as a citizen, who or what am I vote? What is my vote for? Uh, the answer to that ought to be a candidate, not a party. And if the way the system is being gamed is such that you are either negotiating, you know, party power or um, maintaining party power, uh, you, you're in effect undermining um, the citizens' vote. Uh, and by extension, you're undermining citizenship itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the way in which we have conceived of citizenship in the states is largely uh, by a vote. You know, yeah. uh, that's how we participate in this democracy. That's the the main sort of instrument, both symbolically and and practically, yeah. uh, for effecting um, effecting change, affecting direction of the country. And what we're describing is a whole set of policies and practices, historical and current. That, that undermine that. And so I, for me, just listening to the conversation, saying this is a, a phenomenally dangerous um, set of issues uh, that I don't think most people give a lot of thought to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's funny, even just having written down the history to recite today and then thinking about it in context of the current stuff, it's almost like these folks are playing with fire and they're awakening things that we fought so hard to put away yeah. over the first 200 years of this country's history. Yeah. Um, that's, well, I think, yeah. And it really incentivizes the other side to do the same thing when and when they do get into power. I yeah. mean, we on a very small level, we saw this with the filibuster, right? Mm-hmm. Democrats, Democrats got a, did away with the filibuster in a certain certain circumstances. Now Mitch McConnell gleefully did away with it to get Supreme Court nomination. So whatever rules you change to favor yourself while you're in power, that's going to come back around. And mm-hmm. and it's ultimately in the long term foolish to to play these kinds of games because it will backfire. Yeah. And I think there's one other dimension here that applies to either party that's in power. And I, I want to come back to this after we talk about sort of the, the biblical foundations here, which is the way you self-justify is by deciding, to your point, Davidi, that your party is so right that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if the rules favor your party a bit. It is such a terrible, unimaginable outcome to see the other party elected, and you are so convinced of sort of your rightness that you think these other things are just means to an end, yeah. means to this end. Um, and so that, that, that I think that's going to be important um, as we kind of think about what a Christian should do in this context, because there are things we care deeply about that we want to get outcomes we want to achieve. And what do we do when they run up against the limits of what popular opinion says or does or allows? Right. So I mean, let's step back for a second and, and, and think about what the Bible tells us about the topic. And um, we're conscious of the fact that there were no democracies as such <laughs> in the Bible, no mm. congressional districts. And yet, what does the Bible tell us about how we should think potentially about the imperative of the right to vote? Um, well, that's a great question, and and um, it reminds me of, of 
of a couple things just by way of principle in terms of how we use our Bibles. Uh, one, we're not going to be able to draw, grab onto proof texts and draw straight lines from biblical texts to this or that sort of um, set of policy uh, prescriptions when it comes to, to voting rights. Uh, and secondly, what that means is then we're going to actually have to think. We're going to have to wrestle with the Scripture, believing it to be sufficient, uh, to, to mine those things that, that are useful. Um, so I, I think I want to suggest four things from the Scripture that we might want to lay hold of as a starting point, at least, for thinking about voting rights in a biblical way. The first is this. The Bible very clearly defines partiality as a sin. Thinking mm-hmm. here of passages like Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. And in the New Testament, of course, you think of passages like James 2. So anything that shows favoritism uh, toward one and disadvantages the other based on a bias uh, or group affiliation would be sinful. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about political groups or ethnic groups or so on. Second thing is this, the Bible very clearly teaches that we're not to oppress various groups. So the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, the poor, um, what one theologian called the quartet of the vulnerable, uh, should be in mind here. Um, so there's a special regard um, for, for such groups, for persons in such groups. So anything oppressive of vulnerable groups would be ruled out. And so however we approach voting rights uh, and the laws that we use to establish them, Uh, need to be anti-oppression. Third thing is that the Bible very clearly says God establishes government. Romans 13, uh, Peter, and so on. And so by inference, then, the rights that a government establishes should be righteously applied to its citizens. And part of what I think we shouldn't miss in this conversation is when we're talking about voting rights, we're actually having a downstream conversation about who's a citizen. right? Um, And so... If we lived in a monarchy where voting isn't a thing, not having a vote would not be sin. But if we lived in a democracy that affords voting rights and the extension of those rights, mm-hmm. uh, again, should not be biased uh, or sinfully partial uh, and should be arguably to all the citizens um, in, the, in, that, in that jurisdiction. So fourth and finally, uh, government then has a responsibility to make sure there are not fraudulent practices of all sorts. Uh, including when it comes to voting rights. So if if government, Romans 13, is established uh, to uh, protect the righteous, bless the righteous, and to correct the evildoer, the wrongdoer, and voter fraud being a crime and a sin, uh, then government has the sword then uh, to use, to establish, um, to reward the good, to punish the evil in that way. So this is an important government function. We, we want to see government involved in this. And I think... Um, that, that, that sort of puts us back into conversations again about states, state rights and the federal role and so on, given the actual history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in broad strokes, I think those would be the four things we, we might, uh, as a beginning point, kind of deduce from Scripture uh, about how we should be thinking about this as Christians. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think that just gives me a lot to think about, right, as I think about, like, it's, it's to your point, right? There isn't a straight line, but there's actually a pretty well-defined jagged line, mm-hmm. right? As you mm-hmm. think about um, not showing partiality in our laws, um, and um, really, you know, yeah, not oppressing, like making sure that you know there's equal access to citizenship uh, for different people. I mean, that's really, really powerful and important stuff, and things that I think we need to take seriously as Christians. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it, I think the distinction I made when arguing trying to argue a case for it is perhaps the mechanism isn't flawed but so much of this is intent and you can see what the intent is mm. very clearly i mean the example from texas of gun gun uh yeah gun permits are acceptable but t- college ids aren't i mean it's it's obvious why that would be um right. you know so it is interesting as a as an example of the heart motivations of the people who are trying to pass these laws. I mean, it's ugly uh, and, and it's sin if it's rooted in partiality. Right. And so to me that that's really compelling. Um, And it, it even makes me think like, is it okay for that kind of quid pro quo? Like, Hey, 
my lefty friend will make your district right. safer and my district safer. Uh, that's partiality too. It's for partiality mm-hmm. towards the people in power. That's right. right. Uh, there's a kind of greed there. Right. There's yeah. a kind of greed there. Mm-hmm. So, but but that the reason I think that approach to gerrymandering can be appealing uh, is because it it suggests a kind of peaceful power sharing um, that in principle we actually want, mm. right? So we, we want to be in a country where access and use of power is shared among the citizenry and those who represent them. But we don't want that sharing to be predicated upon uh, backroom deals uh, and parlor tricks. We want it to be transparent. We want it to be accessible and understood by the citizenry if, in fact, what this democracy requires is an informed citizenry that, that knows how the, the sort of wheels of, of government and power turn. Um, so I think that that kind of thing can seem like a win in the short run or on, on the surface, mm-hmm. but in the long run, it's just eroding the institution in the very ways that we've been talking about. Well, and it, it incentivizes, you know, I'm, gonna f- I'm not going to make any efforts to reach out to people who are not That's within right. my... That's right. Support base. Right? Yeah. So so much for representative democracy. We're back to tribal democracy. Yeah. 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 And you know we talked about identity politics here, and and this would seem to reinforce that on, right. on several levels. And that's not identity politics aren't necessarily bad, but in this lens, it could very easily create animosity and all sorts of things that we don't we don't want to see. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot we could talk about here, but so I think in in that. In that sort of uh, spirit, uh, just with that in mind, with those kind of verses in mind, as Christians, how should we think about the idea of the right to vote? What does that mean for us? And I want to come back to something I said before. What if the people we're enfranchising disagree with us, right? Um, What if enfranchisement and more universal suffrage pushes our laws further away from a Christian worldview, not further towards one? How are we to think about the right to vote in that uh, case? What strikes me immediately is we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, wh- where did we lose our good Calvinism, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> our God is a big God. Um, demographic trends, voter trends. This is not. This is nothing. Given Genesis one one, um, yeah. there's just there's, there's nothing that's too big for our God, and we really look foolish. We get worked up about, oh my gosh, we're two percent more democratic or Republican than we were ten years ago. the 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 world is falling in on itself, um, and, and whereas we have the Creator of the universe as our as our Lord and Savior, it, it just it doesn't make sense. It's a it's a shallow theology. It's a shallow understanding of who God is. Mm. Well, there's a sense in which I think we should think about the quote unquote right to vote, not so much as a right, but as a privilege. Um, mm. For example, as a I mean, there, we have many Christian brothers and sisters living in countries that, sure. that don't have this right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested to learn recently there, there are countries that have compulsory voting. Mm-hmm. The one you were just in. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Australia. Uh, that's right. So it's like, oh, that, that's a different way of approaching <laughs> this. You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> it feels so much like a right, but I'd better do it before I go to jail, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, Get, pay a fine, not go to jail. Well, you know, <laughs> yes. there's, a, there's, a different, so there's a different kind of fraud happening there, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so one thing is just to realize the way we've been doing it is not the only way to do it. That's yeah. right. Right? And, and that what we have enjoyed by way of blessing is not at all an entitlement. Right, mm-hmm. um, and and so we should, I think, hold this with with a little bit of a freer hand, and I think that means we should do precisely what Ben was saying there a moment ago, and that is mm-hmm. we should st- take our stand on principle, how it works itself out in providence. We're trusting to a sovereign God, um, and and not trying to manipulate in ways that serve us as Christians, because then we we we're, we're acting in the system in precisely the same ways that we've been describing, the, the sort of fallen, broken ways um, that um, we've been describing in, in this episode. And I don't think that's the path forward. Mm. And so we, we need a clearer principled position that we take our stand on, apply uh, as evenly as we know how, and in all of that as an act of faith, uh, trusting in God to do better with our principles than, than perhaps we can do ourselves. Yeah. 
I think this is important, and it gets at this idea of how Christians live in a sort of pluralistic democracy. Um, because the most stark version of the question I just asked is, if anti-democrat, if being anti-democratic could get you closer to, for example, the pro-life position in our laws, would you do it, mm -hmm. right? And I think that, I mean, and, and in effect, you're, you're seeing people make that argument, mm -hmm. right? Like, let's be anti-democratic, that will give us a pro-life Supreme Court, let's be anti-democratic, that will get us pro-life laws in the states. Um, and I think what I'm hearing from both of you is we should, we, we should make the argument for those laws. We should sort of contest within the rules of the game these questions, but rigging the rules of the game in order to get what we want uh, well, that way lies sort of giving up on the idea of democracy uh, as a whole. Well, well, it's a sin. Mm -hmm. it's, it's unequal weights and measures, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. So we should not take a sinful approach to getting even a good thing, a, a dramatically good thing, mm -hmm. uh, like the end of abortion, number one. Secondly, it's short-sighted mm -hmm. uh, in at least two ways. Ben, ben mentioned one already. When the next guy's in power, right. Uh, he's going to be using the same means. We've right. just lowered the bar and made it easier for that to go in the other direction. And it's short-sighted in terms of the long view of the integrity of our institutions. Yeah. Right. So if we are undermining our institutions today to chip away at some end that we think is good, you started the show talking about how we, we often we don't examine it, the rightness of our own viewpoints. Mm -hmm. But th that that's just going to weaken many things we say we cherish as citizens um, in ways that we won't be, easy, won't be easily recovered a generation or two or three for now. Yeah. Um, and I, if I could just speak as, as someone sort of, um, when you recount this history, as someone in a group um, that for most of this country's experiment with democracy was on the disenfranchised end of this, mm -hmm. that ain't pretty. That ain't pretty. We we don't want to be there. We we don't want to wind up, you know, as Christians being a pariah for anything other than the cross. Mm. And we become a pariah for our politics and that kind of calculation, and we become the disenfranchised folks uh, as a result of that. Well, we we've we've done we've suffered for unrighteousness in that. And and Peter says we should. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's the route we want to take. Yep. Yep. So. Um, but sort of one, one, wrapping up with our last couple questions, what would be on your kind of wish list as regards sort of practical, tactical things you'd want to do to secure better voting rights? What are some of the things you'd like to see happen? Well, did, I did the Australians convince you about compulsory voting, Davini? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I'm, I'm happy for compulsory voting. I think the right to not vote is important. Uh, I, 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 I hear you. I hear you. I think so. Um, but, you know, you're so right. You're right. But, but they're, 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 so this thing has many pros to I think you're allowed to, to go it. in there and say, I vote for nobody, but you have to go in. Mm. Sure. But then it's like, <laughs> you've, now, you've now taken the, so I feel somewhat seriously about this. You've taken the one thing that can never be replaced, which is my time. There is nothing more precious than time Whoa. in in terms of like, alloc like allocation of resources. So if it's going to well, take. Well, there's like your life. There's your health. A little hyperbole. Right. Some, some libertarian talk right yeah. now. <laughs> but you're going to take 30 to 30, 60 minutes or more of my life. I can never get back. I'm that much closer to death. No, I should, oh. have the, I should have the right not to vote. Well, so so I, 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 I am slightly more persuaded of compulsory voting mm -hmm. than my friend here. I, I would also love to see it be a holiday. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I enable folks to, to, to vote in that way. Uh, obviously, I, I, I think the 65 Voting Rights Act is better than the experimentation that's been happening sure. over the last couple of decades. And so anything that takes the teeth away from the federal government in enforcing these civil rights, um, even in a preemptive way, mm -hmm. I, I think is a mistake because I think the long history is telling us um, that sort of pushing it down to the states is precisely what gets us into the most trouble uh, around this set of issues. So I, I, I don't have any confidence in uh, sort of local decision making here yeah. uh, in a way that then is equitable across the country uh, and, and protecting 
these rights that we've been surrounded in the Constitution. Well, and I mean, the, the 65 Voting Rights Act is 54 years old. Mm -hmm. That is less than a third of our country's collective history. That's right. Almost a quarter, actually. That's right. I mean, it's, it would be naive to think That's right. um, that we couldn't easily slip back. That's right. I mean, and, 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 again, and the evidence right after Shelby of mm. states rushing to do exactly yeah. what they knew they were not allowed to do under the 65 mm -hmm. Voting Rights Act. That's just telling. That's a telltale sign. Ben, your wish list? Oh, I, I agree with the national holiday. I, it's never made sense to me why we wouldn't. It's because you want to use your time freely. You don't, right. want, to go, you don't want to go to work. Or... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Redeem the day. Um, yeah, no, I, I think we have holidays for, you know, we have holidays. This is, I'm going to get in trouble. We have holidays for Christopher Columbus, who is a, a mixed legacy at best. Can I have an episode on that? At best. <laughs> and we're not going to take a day to do the most important participatory mm. element of citizenship that we have. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Amen. By the way, one other point I want to make broadly about this is that one set of counter arguments we didn't talk about is in some cases these things we're asking about run against the grain of stuff in the Constitution or stuff in current statute. Right. So, for example, um, when Election Day is would have to I don't think it requires a constitutional amendment, but it would be it's, it's sort of in the tradition. It's sort of stated uh, a certain way. And they say, well, that's just the way it is. And I guess one argument I'd make is um, and we'll, we'll get into this in another episode, but there's no um, because it's the way it is, is not a good argument. Right. When it comes to like the way these things are set up. And, but often that's I mean, things like the Electoral College, things like apportionment in the Senate, like other things like that. Yes, it's in the Constitution. Yes, it was decided, you know, 200 some odd years ago. I like the Electoral College. Oh, OK, well, that's a that's a different uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to talk about that separately. Um, no, but like I think but but even just the idea, I mean, but but, you know, like but when people make that argument. You'd, you'd say, well, I'd, I want to make the changes that are necessary in order to deliver on these principles because our fidelity is to these principles read out of Scripture, mm. not to kind of what Congresses and or others of the past have bound us to in law. Mm. Uh, if you should try to change the law in order to do that. All I'd add to the wish list is I'd say I am on team compulsory voting with uh, Thabiti. I know that that makes us both outliers for the record, right? Like most <laughs> people are going to so. say, yeah. But but my, my, most people are going to say, I didn't know it was a thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Were, uh, which I said my, two weeks ago. <laughs> but, but it's funny. If you knew what the shape of your electorate would be, if turnout weren't this thing you were guessing at every year, politicians would probably behave a little bit better. Yeah. They'd have right? to behave differently. Like, yeah. We know who's going to vote. Mm -hmm. Let's try to see what it means to be responsive to those people. Yeah, right? I mean, one of the things that we maybe bemoan um, in some of our politicians, from the way Hillary Clinton campaigned to the way President Trump is viewed, we always bemoan the notion that that person doesn't represent all of us. Mm -hmm. If we have an approach to voting that could get us closer to that person is all of our representative. That's got to be a good thing. Yeah. It's got to increase accountability to that person in office. It's got to be increasing the voice of differing groups uh, mm -hmm. in the process. Uh, I, I, maybe I'm being a little bit of an idealist, but I, I tend to think that's a, that's a better situation than some people walking around referring to President Trump as 45 because he thinks he's a legitimate president. And some people walking around saying, oh, I, that person is never my president, da da da, da. Hmm. which we have with almost every guy or gal yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. I think we can do better. That's a really, really good point. So, yeah, so two principles. Even if, ben, even if Ben doesn't really want to go vote. That's right, that if it's an infringement upon his sacred time. Even, even though he That's was right. going anyway. Yeah. Right? yeah so, I, I do vote. Uh -huh. is, you do make that, that choice. Is, that is my choice. That's right. But if somebody has time, they, they want to spend their time else, elsewise, they, that is their right. All right. I disagree so, right. with you statists. <laughs> The only two principles, I have two principles I think about here. Elections should be competitive. Voting should be easy, Limited. right? Maybe yeah. maybe yeah. compulsory, right? But like e at the easy. very least, remove the barriers That's to right. access right. uh, to voting. And that, that has all sorts of implications. <laughs> Holiday, um, e early easy voter registration, multiple ways to register, mm -hmm. um, you know, with the right safeguards built in, mm -hmm. um, ways of voting early, uh, you know, to a point ahead of the election. Um, and also... Um, even just thinking about like what it means to um, uh, th there are there are things around like uh, yeah so anyway so voting should be easy 
Um, and I think giving people access to vote in kind of multiple forms and making it easy for them to do that, if not making it compulsory, um, would be really, really good things to do. Um, and then making elections competitive means um, when you think about the way districts are drawn, right? Uh, it could mean multi-member districts, right? In which um, you just sort of have less of a sense of like certain voters are disenfranchised. If you have multi-member districts, more people can kind of find their candidate to vote for um, and elect. Um, but at the very least, to kind of take the power to draw those districts out of the hands of the very people who are going to be running in those districts. That to me feels like a way of removing kind of bias. And that's an example of something that's basically in the Constitution, which I don't think is right, right? And just because they decided it was going to be that way, I don't think means that it's something we should be bound to. It's something that we ought to change. Um, so those are some of the things that are on my list. I think that last point, it, it opens a can of worms, which is like social contract theory, which is probably worth doing an episode on. Yeah, maybe um, we should. Because that you're changing the you're changing the social contract, and if you do that by amendment like or law passage, okay. Yeah, sure, but sure. I mean, some of the greatest right. hits, like the 13th, 14th, and 15th yes. Amendments that we opened the episode with, yeah. right, are vital to our current yeah. understanding of what it is to be a democracy. Mm-hmm. Why can't we amend again to make our democracy even stronger? Oh, we certainly can. Oh. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. It is incredibly difficult, but yeah. again, so the point is, like, what's, what do we think is the right thing to do, right? And this is what I think is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, okay, so final thoughts. Just the individual Christian. Advice for individual Christians as they engage on this issue as they think about it as they think about what it means for them to vote any last thoughts my only quick one is don't reflexively assume if your party backs this law it's it's necessarily good i think i think a default position for uh conservatives uh, myself included is you know oh this representative or senator or state legislature state legislator is introducing a law on voter IDs that sounds innocuous that sounds yeah that's a good thing we want citizens to be able to vote um, consider that they have their self-interest at heart not necessarily um, even-handed legislation hmm. I would just encourage folks to steward their votes as the best way they know how hmm. that, that might mean in a given election they feel like they have to abstain given the alternatives might mean voting, uh, holding your nose. Um, it, it It is the exercise of the vote, I think, um, that becomes one of the best protections of, of the right to vote. Um, and to be fearless in defense of your fellow citizens and, and, and their right to vote uh, because the erosion of this, the, the franchise for any group of people mm. will be an erosion of the franchise for, for all, all Americans. All I'd add to that is I think one thing we kind of learned together in this episode uh, was essentially this idea that democracy may not be in the Bible, but I think we've all kind of agreed that it is a very, very good thing that God has given to us Mm -hmm. and that it is one of the best ways we know how, right? You know, Winston Churchill said the worst form of government except for all the alternatives, Mm -hmm. right? It is one of the best ways we know how to help neighbors live together um, in a sort of political unit, especially a country as large and diverse as ours. And so pr- and I, so I think my advice to Christians would be protect democracy itself as a value. Right. Um, don't see all these other issues as the only aims to go after. I think That's we're right. seeing more of an awakening around that now. And I think I'd love to see Christians on the forefront of defending some of these ideals and principles. Amen. All right, well, that, Debbie, you want to go ahead and close us in prayer? Amen. Father, we thank you for your... Um, merciful providence for you have allowed those who are Americans either by birth or uh, by naturalization um, immigration you've allowed us this this great honor this great privilege of of casting votes um, in the direction uh, of our country for the direction of our country for the leaders of our country Um, those votes are consequential and um, and yet we live in a time and um, circumstances where uh, the the meaning of that action, the potential of that action might be chipped away and circumscribed in any number of ways. And we, we, we thank you for issues like this that are thorny and uh, aren't solvable by proof texts because it casts us on our knees in faith and prayer and it forces us to have to work and think 
and apply ourselves, to apply our hearts to your word. So help your church to do that and uh, help us to care not only about the topical issues, but to care about the institutions in which we, um, we work on those issues and um, the values that undergird those institutions. So give us wisdom, give us grace, make us a principled people uh, and help us to take our stand uh, on those principles we pray that, that rise out of your word. We ask this, Father, and ask your blessings upon uh, your church all around the world, whatever its polity. Um, guard and protect your people and use them as salt and light, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.